when we watch movies at our house, we dial the audio up to 100. That's the proper way to watch a movie. And the volume is at 100, not 98, not 87, 100. I don't want to, if you take a bite of a chip, I don't want to hear it. If you swallow something, I don't want to be here. If you're eating and I can hear you, it's too quiet. A hundred. Now, when the movies are over, um, you know, we don't watch television like that. That's crazy. But when you're watching movies, they should be at a hundred. And when the, when, the, when the film is over, we, you know, we turn the volume back down. Uh, but every once in a while, we forget. And then the next time you turn the TV on, and those Netflix chimes come in at, at 100, Ba-ba-ba. that just gets everybody's attention. It demands a response. It, it's impossible to just ignore it. It demands a response. Our text for this morning on Boxing Day is John chapter 1. It's a text that just comes in at volume 100, and it demands a response. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the wonder of Christ, the incarnation of God who became man. And so we want to reflect on the majesty of that at level 100. Impossible to ignore. First 18 verses, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. And he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was known, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to them who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only one, the Son of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, crying out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. And out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. Now, John describes Jesus coming into the world as light driving out darkness. Cosmic conflict. God waging war. And the way that God wages war is he drives out darkness with his light. The way that God wages war is not with people, but with the enemy of darkness, with the Satan who came to bring death and destruction to God's people. But God wages war over us because he loves us. And Jesus comes into our darkness. We don't worship a God who 
is transcendent but has no concept of what it is to be human and how difficult the last two years have been for all of us. We have a God who is intimately acquainted with suffering, intimately acquainted with darkness. Jesus came into humanity's darkness. He experienced life under that darkness. He loved those oppressed by darkness. Jesus spoke truth to power, specifically religious leaders who went to bed with those in darkness. Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And as he did, the sky turned dark like a bruise. He died in darkness. And then on the third day, the tomb was empty. And the resurrection of Jesus means that in the end, is not darkness. In the end, light will dispel darkness. What does the future hold? Good news, church. The future doesn't hold ruin. Restoration. The Christian life is not a slow march into a sunset, an inevitable death. The hope of the Christian life is that our life is a slow march in this darkness towards a sunrise, a restoration of all things, the deepest longings of the human soul realized, the resurrection, the light who dispelled darkness come into our darkness. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, and this is really good news in these very tiring days of ours. Dorothy Sayers is an English uh, playwright and theologian, and on the doctrine of the incarnation, God made man. This is what she wrote. She said, we may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, and words have no meaning at all. What in heaven's name can we call exciting? This is what she says of God made man. This is what she says of this text, dialed to a hundred, demands a response. In the words of C.S. Lewis, God made man can't somehow be moderately important, moderately interesting. Just changes our lives, church. Recalibrates us in the difficult days, the frustrating moments that we live in. To stop and to reflect on this. Let this sink deeply into our hearts. Bring renewal to our minds. That will work its way out through our hands. And the lives that we lead as a result of Christ who's come into our darkness. And in the beginning, verse 1, recalls this language from the book of Genesis on purpose. Starts just like the book of Genesis on purpose. Because the very act of creation foreshadows recreation. The very verbs that show up in Genesis 1, the way God moved to create, moves in our hearts and lives in the way that he recreates. Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and was without and was with void. Then God said, let there be light. That's how the Bible begins. There's darkness, God speaks, and then there's light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what God creates first is not a completely finished world. What he creates first is a swirling sphere of waters where there's only death. That's what the text says. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Get the image. The Spirit of God is hovering over that which is dead and lifeless. And here in our recreation, here we are dead, but the Spirit of God hovers over the... Over the face, not of the waters, but of the human soul. 
in the beginning, God says, let there be light. And here we are learning that the light, not that God created the light, which would be a weird heresy to say God created Jesus. I'm not saying that. But in Genesis, it says, God says, let there be light. And here what we are learning is that the very word of God, the very creative force that created all things was Jesus. And here the one who hovers over the deadness of the human soul is Jesus. And in the hearing of the gospel, in the hearing of the good news of Jesus, life comes from death. The God of creation is the God of recreation. The creator is the redeemer, one and the same. And John dials it to 100 because he wants to get everyone's attention. And he does something interesting. He uses a word that for 500 years had become in philosophy uh, sort of the way in which everybody understood the way that the cosmos originated. And he uses the word logos. In the beginning was the word. In the Greek, it's logos. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. Why does John do that? You know, for 500 years, the philosopher Heraclitus used logos to describe the way that the gods had sort of created order out of chaos. During John's very lifetime, a philosopher named Philo would say things like, well, the way in which order was brought to the universe, the way in which existence came from non-existence was through logos. It's where we get the English word logic. So the philosophers of the time were all sort of seeking, just as the modern-day philosophers do, seeking the logic of the meaning of life and ontology and where did we come from? How did everything spin from nothing? And what was the creative force that began all that? And so they would, when they had discussions around all of that, they called it logos. And so what John does is he takes a, a, a phrase that had been written in philosophy for 500 years and was being used by Philo during his lifetime, and he says, you know, the answers for absolutely everything that you are looking for is not a static set of principles. The Logos is a person, Jesus Christ, God, the creator of all things. And so John uses this language on purpose to get that volume knob up to 100, to get all of the philosophic thinkers to come to attention. There's a geneticist named Francis Collins. He wrote a book called The Language of God. Francis Collins is a geneticist who discovered genes that were responsible for diseases in people's body. Back in the year 2000, the presidential administration put him in charge of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins was a part of the team that mapped out human DNA. So the guy knows his stuff. Francis Collins is also a believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's a Christian. But his faith and his reason are friends. And so he wrote a book called The Language of God, and in it, Collins says this, when he's speaking about the beginning, the logos of the universe. He says, the scientific consensus is that the universe had a beginning. And this implies that before that, there was nothing. And I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, created itself. The fact that the universe had a beginning, it implies someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that that someone was outside nature. Alvin Plantinga is a philosopher, uh, taught philosophy at Notre Dame. And uh, he had a, an interesting picture when he talked to challenged people to think about the logos how are we here and where did order come from chaos and how does human life even exist and Alvin Plantinga would say it this way you know if you're playing poker with someone and they put down four aces your response is going to be whoa 
And then if the very next hand, they put down four aces, your response is probably not going to be, whoa. Your response is probably going to be, wait a second. And as the night rolls on, if the person you're playing poker with just hands themselves hand after hand after hand of four aces, by the 20th, 21st hand, first hand of four aces, you're not, stand, you're not sitting there in wonder and amazement anymore. That's not reasonable. It's not reasonable after 20 straight hands of four aces to say, this is probably definitely random chance. The most reasonable thing is to expect that somebody is doing something. That is the more reasonable response. And so Plantenga argues, as you look at the hundreds of millions or perhaps billions of things that would have had to have occurred for human existence to be a reality, you can't marvel at the randomness of the universe. It is more reasonable to expect somebody is doing something. Somebody is handing the cosmos a handful of aces, not 20 times in a row, hundreds of millions of times in a row, in order for us to exist. John is wanting to get everybody's attention by using the word logos to describe Jesus by saying he is actually the answer for everything that you're looking for. And this plays out very deeply and practically as we look out on a world that is hurting and frustrated when we consider the paradox of humanity. We're kind of tired of the paradox because our world is beautiful, but it is also undeniably broken. So we can see glimpses of kindness and generosity and love and care, and we love that, but there's also every morning when you wake up, somebody doing some terrible thing. And, and we're tired of the terrible thing. And so we can look in Jesus and realize that the hope of the world, the hope of humanity, the, at the core of all the Christmas carols that we sing during the Christmas season, is the king, the one who will come and set all things right, who will, in the end, restore the earth and, and uh, civil life and the material universe and even these bodies of ours that, are, that break down. He will restore all things And we ought to give that pause. Because if we do give it pause and we consider that the one who rose from that grave in 33 AD is the one who is going to come again and restore all things, that will flood your heart and your soul with tremendous joy. For us, church, this is what we gather every seven days to do, to recalibrate ourselves. And that's my job. It's my job to remind you that this life is not all there is. That's my job. Ray Ortland was speaking to a bunch of us who were about to plant a church, and he said uh, at this conference we were at, he said, if you don't remind your congregation that they're all going to die, you're not doing your job. And you're like, whoa, that's so dark. Um, can, can we talk about other things? He's like, you're not doing your job. The gospel is life and death stuff. If you don't want to talk about it like it's life and death stuff, and we talk about small little things to sort of help everybody navigate the small p politics of the last seven days, you're not doing your job. So I really feel compelled. I mean, I have for six years, but predominantly in these tiring days that we live in, I feel like, man, if there's ever a time for me to do my job, it's now much time for me to do my job. Good news, church. The one who spun the cosmos into all things and created all things, he will redeem them. He will restore them. Therefore, may you and I go out now as witnesses of the light with joy and gladness in our hearts and be ministers of this gospel. Be those who go into the city with love and care and fire in our eyes as we've been swept away by the goodness of Jesus and of who he is.
God's written word instructs us. But Jesus, the living word, the eternal word, he doesn't merely instruct us and guide us. He indwells us. He recreates us. This is why all wisdom literature begins in the same place. And I often remind you of this whenever we go to wisdom texts. If you're going to be wise, you've got to be a worshiper. If you're not going to be a worshiper, you can't be wise. Those things are inseparable. Why? Because you must worship the one who created all things so that you can realign the desires of your heart, the commitments of your mind, your ethics, your behavior to the, to, to the king. Bend your knee to him. This is the way of wisdom. It all begins in the worship. And so John is intentionally using this sort of really heightened language to get us to think about this so we can be people of worship, people of wisdom, because we become increasingly wise and increasingly loving, not because the word is a written set of principles informing our minds, but because the word, the word is a a dynamic person who loves us, who captivates us, who changes our very hearts. Verse 12 and 13 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And he goes on to use some interesting language there. He says it's not natural descent. It's not about human decision. It's not through a husband's will. I mean, why would he use that kind of language and say that? Because he wants to contrast. There's a great difference between the heavenly father and all earthly fathers. In the ancient world, who was your daddy? That was a big deal. Today that may be true in, other, in certain contexts. In the ancient world, what family are you from? That was everything. Today, that's still true in certain contexts. In the ancient world, what socioeconomic class are you from? What neighborhood do you live? What's your postal code? Oh, wow. I mean, that's what the world, that's how the world ran. And so what John does here is he goes, you you know, God is, the God, the creator of all things, the one who will, give you the right to be his child, it is not based on who you are. It is not based on what you have done. It is not based on your family, which in that context meant everything. He says, this is by sheer grace alone that we are given the right to be called children of God, that he is unlike all the other fathers, that he's going to give the inheritance to those who absolutely don't deserve the inheritance. Verse 14 goes on to say that he came and he dwelled among us, this image of you know, the God who's been wanting to tabernacle with his people since Genesis. And he's got this history of temple making. As we talked about on Christmas Eve, as Mary became the first flesh and blood temple. All before that, there were many temples. And then after Mary, you and I, we become spiritual temples. And now God is moving throughout the earth through his church, his global church, all across different cultures spanning the world in these mobile temples. And God has desired this from the beginning and this, this uh, sort of this glorious picture of what he's wanted from the beginning and what he's going to have in the end. And verse 16 says that we're given in this great God of grace, grace upon grace. Now, this translation says grace in place of grace. Other translations say grace upon grace. It's an image of being constantly replenished because you and I are in constant need. We're always in need of his grace. And he's always there to faithfully uh, supplied and to give it to us. And so then he concludes this prologue with a really powerful statement. He says, No one's seen God fully until now. The Old Testament, God's presence was always overwhelming. It was amazing, but it was always overwhelming. And in the New Testament, 
God's presence is now still amazing, but it's not overwhelming. It's comforting. It's assuring. It's empowering. You get this picture that in the same way that your naked eye can't stare at the sun without getting your retina burnt out, all throughout the Old Testament you could look on God without dying. And so Jesus comes as this filter in the same way that you, with a filter you can, you can look and look at the, at the flames dancing on the surface of the sun and, and be amazed at the, the detail, but you can only do that with a filter. And Jesus comes as the perfect filter, the perfect interpretation of God. If you're looking at Jesus, you're seeing God. And he comes so that we can behold his glory. And then verse 17, as he concludes his prologue, he says that the law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what does this mean? It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of every prior word, and he's God's final word. He's the fulfillment of every word spoken before, Fulfillment of every prophetic word, and he's God's final word. Moses was born while God's people were suffering under Pharaoh. Jesus was born while God's people are suffering under Herod. Moses was born, when Moses was born, Pharaoh killed scores of male children trying to keep his throne. Herod killed scores of male children trying to keep his throne. Moses' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery in Egypt. Jesus' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery, sin, and death. Moses instructed God's children to sacrifice a Passover lamb for their sin. Jesus was the final sacrifice and the one true Passover lamb who's taken away our sin. Moses once lifted up a bronze serpent on a pole and everyone who looked at it had their sickness taken away. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, and all who look to him, we have our sin and the finality of death taken away. Moses was the first mediator. Jesus is the final mediator. Moses gave the Ten Commandments to God's children. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments for God's children. Moses died on a hill outside the promised land because he couldn't keep God's law. Jesus died on a hill outside the city because we can't keep God's law. Moses could not look on the face of God. Jesus shows us the face of God. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, God is this God of perfect justice and loving mercy. The cross is a picture of God's perfect justice and loving mercy. You know, if God was just holy and just, but he wasn't loving and merciful, he would have never come. He would have never become human. This text would not exist. Because if God was only holy and there was no mercy, he would have said, you've got the Ten Commandments, keep the first one, and then the next nine flow from the first one, and there's no need to come if he was just pure holiness without mercy. And if God was all mercy and no justice, he also wouldn't have come. Why bother? If you live a loving and kind life, or you're an axe murderer, None of it's relevant because in the end, you're all going to be okay because I'm just going to wink at injustice and I'm going to just say everything's fine in the end. And There's no point in the incarnation of God. If God was just holiness without mercy and if he was just mercy without holiness, God does not need to come. It's divine overkill. But because in Jesus Christ we see mercy 
and justice. And in the cross, we see mercy and justice. We celebrate that first Christmas. We celebrate that Advent. We celebrate that God has become a man. And he did it because he needed to do it. Because only a God who is both holy and loving, just and merciful, would come and clothe himself in humanity and come to us to save us. The eternal word heard through a human voice. The God who thundered on Mount Sinai would cry in a manger. His own holiness satisfied his justice on behalf of us. And his loving kindness provided grace as his cross took away guilt from us. I'm going to close with this. John says in verse 7, he was a witness of the light. That he came to bear witness of the light. May you and I bear witness of this light. May we do this. We do this humbly and we do this confidently. Jesus Christ is the one, the light, who came into the darkness who was not overcome. And you and I, numerous times in the New Testament, are called to overcome. What does the overcoming look like? It looks like Christ. It looks like loving and caring and sacrificing and dying and laying our lives down. May we bear witness of this light. We'll do it humbly because God chooses to shine his light through us. Through his cracked vessels. So we do it humbly. But we also do it confidently. We do it confidently because this is what God has always done. We can be bold because God has chosen to do his work through us. He's called us to participate with him. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Christ alone. Praise be to his name.